So in today's episode, uh, I'm going to do another double feature because the first story is pretty short. Um, it's the last story I'm going to read that was published by a third party, um, published at toastedcheese.com, um, titled Gramps' Stereo. It's kind of funny because the title, um, I don't know if it's supposed to be Gramps apostrophe S or just Gramps apostrophe, uh, but it's titled Gramps's Stereo. Uh, again, originally published at Toasted Cheese and now in also in my collection Shady Acres and Other Stories. So first up, Gramps's Stereo. It was Gramps's old record player that did it. In the end, it almost ripped us apart which have been, would have been ironic. In the end, it brought us back together again. My first memory of the record player was from a day my parents left me with my grandparents. Back in the mid-70s, when I was probably five or six years old. They were supposed to watch me while my parents spent the day running errands. The last thing Daddy wanted was for this sniveling little brat to come with them. When they dropped me off, I did my best to live up to Daddy's view of me. As Mama walked down the walkway to the street where Daddy sat in the car waiting, I screamed and stomped my feet. It did no good. Mama got in the car, turned to me, and blew a kiss while I held my hand out and cried for her. As Daddy drove the car down the tree-lined street, Gramps picked me up and kissed me on my cheek, his rough stubble a memory I haven't forgotten. Come, little one, he said in his old country accent. Let us listen to some music. He took me into the front room and sat me down in his recliner. While I tried to control my sobs, Gramps went to a cabinet in the corner. On top was his record player. It had fake fake wood paneling and two huge speakers on the floor next to the cabinet. Gramps lifted the arm and placed the needle down on the spinning platter, bringing forth a crackle from those speakers. My sniveling stopped. Through the openings, seconds of hissing and snapping, Gramps walked to the the chair I sat in. He leaned over and picked me up, a small grunt escaping from him as he did so. He sat down in the chair and put me in his lap as the music began. I have no idea what the song was, but it soothed me. Within seconds, I had stopped crying while the delicate sounds emanated from the speakers and Gramps rubbed my back. Every few, every few seconds, he whispered, Shh. In the years ahead, Gramps' old record player worked its magic. When I was grown, along with my brother and our cousins, our grandparents' house was where we always returned for the traditional family get-togethers. For Thanksgiving, we ate Grandma's dry turkey and drier stuffing. At Christmas, we enjoyed her baked ham and macaroni and cheese out of a box. For anniversaries and birthdays, weddings and funerals, we shared in potlucks and grandma's version of food. Every time we got together, there was always a point at which voices would rise, forks would be slammed to the table. Whether it was politics or religion, whether Aunt Susie should have been invited, or whether distant cousin Bill was a drunk, something always caused a stir that would end when Gramps rose from the table. It is time for some music, he would mutter to himself, but loudly enough for everybody to hear. Gramps, who was old back in the 70s, when I was just a boy of five or six, would hobble to the front room. Soon the crackle and hiss would make its way into the dining room, 
and a few seconds later an orchestra filled with strings and woodwinds would follow. When Gramps returned and sat back down in his chair, the creak of his joints overriding the music for just the briefest of seconds, he would look at his family reaching down the sides of the table. Now, what were we talking about? For the rest of the evening, whatever conflict had arisen was forgotten. The music did its trick. When Gramps died, preceded only a couple of months by Grandma, he left no will. Just a houseful of stuff accumulated over the 91 years of his life. We gathered there one Saturday afternoon. All of the cousins, my brother John and I, Chris and Chelsea, our mothers, Gramps and Grandma's only children, didn't want to have anything to do with going through their stuff. It was too painful for them. Take what you want, Mama said. Whatever's left, give to goodwill. The four of us were barely in the front door when Chris stated, I want the record player, and headed straight to it. Uh Uh-uh, John said, not so fast. Chris stood up and turned towards John. What? You think you get it? You don't even like music. You don't own a CD, let alone a record. You wouldn't know what to do with it. Yeah, but maybe Chelsea wants it, or Sherry. John replied, nodding his head in my direction. I don't want anything else. You can all fight over everything else in this house, but the record player is mine, Chris said, taking a step step towards John. It was amazing how quickly his anger had risen. Chris, you don't get to just march in here and order us around and tell us what you get and what we get. John, it's okay, Chelsea said. I don't want... The record player is mine. He walked over to John and jabbed him in the chest with each word. End of story. John didn't back down. He batted Chris's hand away and turned a bright shade of red. Don't do that again. I did the only thing I could think of to do. While the two men, acting like little boys, stared each other down, I went to Gramps' record player and turned it on. Once the disc was spinning, I picked up the needle and placed it on the edge. I turned the volume up so that the crackle and hiss filled the room, followed a few seconds later by the sound of a lone violin eking out a mournful melody. By the time the first song was over, the four of us stood huddling together, wiping our tears and promising to do better. And that is the end of Gramps' stereo. The next one is called... The Watcher, and it is published in The Marfa Lights and Other Stories, and I'm trying to see if I can remember, oh, this is a story that I submitted to the first line. Um, It wasn't accepted, but uh, it's published in The Marfa Lights and Other Stories, and Here you go. The Watcher. Working for God is never easy. That's what I told the shrink when he sat down in his leather chair and asked, Why are you here? The expensive brown leather sighed as his weight settled in and the cushioning molded to his skinny ass. And why is that? I could see it in his head. I was another wacko who believed God was talking to him. 
Should he prescribe the little blue pill or maybe the green one? Was I a schizophrenic or a paranoid schizophrenic? I had no doubt that when Dr. Walensky asked me this question, he was already wondering what the voices were telling me. He was probably halfway to a diagnosis. The problem with any diagnosis Dr. Walensky may have come up with was that it would have been wrong. I wasn't psycho. I wasn't crazy. I wasn't even borderline. I was most certainly 100% certifiably sane. And I worked for God. It's the death. It's everywhere. Uh Uh-huh. I wanted to jump and shake Dr. Walensky out of his patronizing response, but I stayed on the couch with the matching leather molded to my own skinny ass. I know what you think. Working for God's got to be easy, but it isn't. It's not all angels and harps. We don't get to float around on clouds and eat grapes while nymphs dance about us. In fact, I don't know that I've ever actually seen an angel playing a harp, and I most certainly have yet to encounter a nymph. I think I would have remembered that. The truth of the matter is that God's business is death. A lot of it. Oh, sure, people want to think about how God will save them and of all the miracles that occur to prove God's existence. People want to think that God is in every tree and flower, that the birth of a child is God's greatest miracle. The cold, hard reality is that God is all about death. What do you think has to happen for somebody to reach salvation? That's right, they have to die. For every miracle that saves a life, there are many others that never happen. Because God needs death. Without death, why would we need him? Who would believe in God if they didn't have to fear what happens after they die? I see. I balled my hands into fists and squeezed to ease the tension that continued to build. Were all shrinks such pricks? Was there a special class they took to learn how to respond without really responding at all? Yeah, Dr. Walensky, particularly if you're a watcher. A watcher? And what exactly is it that a watcher does? The good doctor now leaned forward. I decided to play Dr. Walensky's game. We watch, I sighed in my own condescending way. What? What do you watch? Dr. Walensky scribbled something in his notepad and looked up at me, waiting for my answer. He was probably already writing the case study of my condition that he would publish in whatever journal patronizing shrimps write for. He could present a paper at some conference in a hotel ballroom while half of the attendees were in their rooms doing the things that stay in Vegas. I clenched my fists and crossed my hands on my stomach. In the past 24 hours, I had pondered how to explain to a stranger what it was I did for God. Now that it was time to do so, I realized I hadn't quite figured it out. Well, a watcher, let me put it this way. God insists that every time someone dies, a watcher is there to witness it. Excuse me? It's not that difficult to understand, Dr. Walensky. I am a witness for God, a witness to death. I see. There it was, that patronizing phrase again. And how exactly does that work? What do you mean? Well, how do you know where to go to do this, to witness death? My hands returned to my sides as the tension began to build again. Squeezing my hands back into fists, I told him, 
God has a lot of people working for him who are not all watchers. They're listeners. They have to sit and listen to God. Laughers. They laugh at all of God's jokes, whether they're funny or not. That's actually pretty difficult to do when you think about it. If they don't sound like they really believe a joke is funny, if their laugh isn't authentic, they lose their jobs and become God's experiments. Speaking of which, if a listener falls asleep while God is talking, same thing. No more job and it's experimentation time. You don't want to know what happens to God's experiments. And there are messengers. Nothing is ever written down. I don't get my instructions by email or anything like that. God doesn't want to leave any trace of what we do. Every day, a messenger comes to me and tells me who I'll be watching that day. The time and the location. Very interesting. The old man was scribbling furiously now. I'm sure he was envisioning the riches my case would bring to him. No, Doc, it's, it's not interesting. It's horrible. I have to witness soldiers coming home from Iraq, sucking the fumes in a garage sealed tight. I watch old people die alone. Last week, I watched little Annalisa Compton die after suffering from leukemia for months. The day before, it was Jordan Alvarez, a triathlete riding a $7,000 bicycle on the side of a road plowed into by a drunk driver. All of these people dying, and I have to watch them, or I'll become one of God's experiments too. Why does God need a witness? I don't know. Guess what? With all of the different jobs there are, all of the things we do for God, there is no questioner. Nobody actually gets to ask him questions. So I've never asked him, and I don't know anybody else who has. I've just about had it to. I want to quit. What would happen if you quit? I, I, I don't know. Nobody ever has before. At least as far as I know, I sighed. I guess there's always a first time. The scratching of Dr. Walensky's pen on his notepad was the only sound that broke the silence that followed. I found myself relaxing, and I needed to fill that silence as the dam broke. Yesterday, I blubbered. I, I, I had to watch a woman beat, beat her grandson to death just because he wouldn't do his homework. I've never seen anything worse. I can take almost anything, soldiers dying, random car accidents, even sick kids every once in a while. But that woman tortured her own flesh and blood. She made him scream for mercy. He died in his sleep from his injuries. I had watched the whole thing because the messenger who came to me earlier in the day wasn't sure of the exact time the little boy would pass. I sniffled and wiped my nose with the back of my hand. I watched that little boy die, Dr. Walensky. He went to sleep in his bed, curled in a ball, whimpering from his injuries. He never woke up again. It was the first time I'd ever done it, told somebody what I did for a living. When I was in training to be a watcher, I was told to never reveal what I did. For seven years, I had followed that rule, but little Johnny Horton's death had broken something in me. I had to, absolutely had to get it off my chest. I was just about to tell Dr. Walensky how it felt to witness such a brutal thing when he cut me off. I'm afraid that's it. Your time is up. How about we do this again next week? Same day, same time? No, actually, Dr. Walensky, I'm afraid your time is up. I rose from the sofa and did my job. I watched.